Hello, and welcome to another episode of Don't Funk With The Original. I am your host, Casper. And I am your other hostess, Becky Grimlin. Here to bring you all things spooky, because it's Wednesday, and... Wednesdays are for podcast, of course. Homicide. <laughs> and homicides. And homicides. I was just quoting Wednesday, but anyway. <laughs> so, this episode, we're trying to keep it a little bit light, because this episode is not going to be light. I'm yeah. going to tell you that right now. This has been a very heavy research episode. Um, if you guys know anything about the BTK killer at all, you will know that it is not exactly the greatest. Of course, really any serial killer story is not the greatest story. You always have, you know, victims and your heart goes out to their families and stuff like that. But this one, this one for some reason really affected me. And I know it really affected Becky too. Yeah. Um, especially watching Carrie, you know, reach out and talk about it. And I actually was moved to tears. So this is going to be a bit heavier, um, but we're excited to talk about it with you guys and bring another true crime episode. We know we get a, we got a lot of good feedback from the Bundy one. So yeah, guys, um, as Casper said, BTK is uh, Dennis Rader. Um, Carrie is his daughter. Uh, we'll get into her in a little bit. Uh, she's done several interviews recently. Um, she has had a book come out about her dad. Um, and, uh, she's done, let's see, she's done a lot of local, uh, news in Kansas where a lot of this took place in Wichita. Um, she's also been on Dr. Phil. Um, she's done a 2020 interview, uh, she also did an interview for the Oxygen Network. Um, I will bring up what her book is titled so that you guys will have a reference to it. It's called A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. Um, her name's uh, Carrie Rawson. So um, I did want to cite some sources that I used um, for the story. Uh, Wikipedia, CNN... Um, again, I, I mentioned Oxygen. They did a documentary about it. Um, 2020 did as well. Uh, again, some local Kansas news stations, YouTube. Um, and also another shout out. I know I've mentioned them previously. Uh, last podcast on the left, which is one of my favorite true crime horror podcast out there. Um, it was there. It was some early episodes that they did. I think about three years ago It was episodes 59 and 61. If you guys wanted to take a listen to them. Um, those guys are hilarious. So they could literally be talking about the most morbid thing ever and make it really funny. <laughs> they're comedians, they're professionals. We are not. So, um, that's why we try to keep it light. Yeah, we we try, try to get a little humor in there, especially, you know, when we were talking about Bundy, we try to get a little bit of humor in there just to be like, <laughs> try to keep it light. Cause it's not light. Yeah. So none of this stuff is light. So, um, again, we will, uh, sorry guys. That was like, I know that was probably like super loud. Excuse um, it you. It was my A&W <laughs> cream soda. They are not a sponsor. She's trying to pass off. But her, I am a fan. She's trying to pass off her gas as A&W. I am a fan of A&W cream soda. Shout out to A&W. <laughs> it might give me gas later, but, uh, no, I'm just Anyway, sorry. do you fart? TMI. Do you TMI. fart in your TMI scenes <laughs> all the time? <laughs> all the time. If you guys know um, what that's from, 
you guys are amazing people. Yeah, if you don't, <laughs> we'll we'll reveal maybe at some point. Maybe. Um, maybe we'll just <laughs> let them figure it out on their own. Like we said, guys, we're going to try to keep this as light as possible. This is like, uh, this is really awful subject matter. Um, if you read on our social media, um, I came up with a really... This literally randomly came to me to describe Dennis Rader. Husband, father, Cub Scout leader, church president, compliance officer, psychotic sexual sadist, and the longest running serial killer in U.S. history, also known as BTK, which stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. Um, his name was Dennis Lynn Rader, and he was born on March 9th, 1945. <clears throat> And the reason why he was known as the uh, longest running serial killer in U.S. history is because his murders spanned between 1974 and 1991 in the Wichita, Kansas area, and he killed 10 people. Um, The reason why he was so notorious is because he used to constantly send letters and different correspondence to the police and to local news outlets. One of his favorite was a station, K-A-K-E, Cake TV in Kansas. Um, He used to write letters to them and send different things. He always wanted to make sure that he was responsible for his crimes, but he did not want to get caught. This guy was like the ultimate Jekyll and Hyde. Um, So we will go into uh, his childhood Um, But before we start, uh, we did want to say real quick, too, that uh, just like our Ted Bundy episode, as well as any other episodes that we're going to do about serial killers, because this is such um, sensitive subject matter that, um, you know, if you don't want to listen, we understand. We would appreciate if you did. But uh, we are going to get into some things that are going to be quite graphic. So this is definitely NSFW, not safe for workplace. Um, not safe for anybody under 18. (laughs) I wouldn't suggest that at all. Um, definitely not safe for children to be listening to. And, um, you know, we also want to make sure that we give, uh, a lot of all of our condolences to the families, um, to Dennis Rader's families, to his daughter, to his daughter and all of the families involved with the victims. Um, and yes, um, Carrie deserves, to have condolences for her and yeah. Paula because and his son and his uh, son Brian um yeah. because they could you just just imagine you're sitting at home one day and the FBI shows up at your door and tells you that your father is a serial killer yeah it's not something that you can just swallow it's not something she's going to they're going to be able to live with for they, that's something they have to live with every single day Every single day they have to live with the fact that someone that they knew and loved did these awful things. Yeah, I'm glad Casper brought that up because Carrie has gotten a lot of, she's gotten a lot of praise, but she's also unfortunately gotten backlash for her book and for her finally speaking out about this. And I just want to say, I don't think that's fair. Um, I'm glad Casper put it that way. I don't think any of us could imagine having a loved one that we've known our entire lives. Her dad walked her down the aisle at her wedding. You know, I don't think anybody could ever imagine someone that you know that close, your own father is this sadistic, sexual, sadistic serial killer. And I did want to say too, sexual... um, 
he never actually raped any of his victims. They were female. Um, all of them, I think, for except for two, uh, they were all female, but he did never rape any of them. He was just, he had some really sick sexual fantasies. And uh, we'll get into that as we go along. But yeah, we definitely think that Carrie, need, Carrie and the rest of the family deserve just as much condolences and support as well as all of the uh, families of the victims involved. Um, maybe not on the same level, of course, but they definitely have suffered. They have definitely suffered. Trust me, they they have. And if Carrie is, this is her way of healing, I think she deserves that. So, um, as I said, uh, Dennis Raider, Dennis Lynn Raider, was born March 9th, 1945, and he was the oldest of four sons born to Dorothea Rader and William Elvin Rader. Um, he grew up in Kansas around the Wichita area. Um, he, at a very, very early age, had a sexual fetish, fetish for women's underwear, and he was notorious for stealing um, women's underwear and just keeping them or wearing them himself. Um, he also had, there were also two other things very uh, significant about his childhood. He would uh, torture animals as a child, any pets that he had, family pets. Um, and there were also reports that he may have wet the bed over a certain age. The reason why I bring that up is um, a lot of people may be familiar with the McDonald triad, also known as the homicidal triad. It was named after a uh, doctor. He was a psychiatrist, Dr. J.M. McDonald. In 1963, he published a paper called The Threat to Kill in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Um, what the McDonald triad is is if uh, you have three, the triad is cruelty to animals, persistent bedwetting past age five, and also an obsession with setting fire. So if you happen to have all three or a combination of two, Dr. McDonald predicted that that would cause someone to have violent or psychotic tendencies. Um so that's why I kind of point that out because there are other murderers in the past that have had the same or similar, um, Dahmer is somebody that we'll get into and Dahmer tortured animals and, um, different things like that had psychosexual fantasies. So kind of all of that can sometimes tie into things later on, maybe not necessarily a serial killer, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on can cause some violent tendencies maybe down the line as it's been predicted. So, um, between 1966 and 1970, uh, Dennis Rader was in the air force when he was discharged. He returned back to Kansas. He worked at an IGA. Um, he married Paula Dietz on May 22nd, 1971. And they had two, two children, uh, which were Karen and Brian. I believe Karen was the oldest. Carrie. Oh, Carrie. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm looking at Carrie. I wrote down Karen. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Carrie. Carrie and Brian. I believe Carrie was the oldest. And, um, Paula and Dennis actually met in church. Um, they were both Christ Lutherans. Um, they both described it as love at first sight. Apparently they were very much in love. Um, he went to Butler County Community College in El Dorado, where he received an associate degree in electronics in 1973. Um, in 1979, he went on to Wichita State University, where he received a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. 
Um, you know what kills me is the fact that both Bundy and him were into getting like actual um, degrees. There we go. I'm sorry. Degrees in criminal justice, and criminal psychology, law, and all this yeah. stuff. That's just hmm, interesting. It's all criminals always want to be smarter than the average bear. So they want to make sure, I mean, that's how you know you're going to get somebody that's going to be a career criminal, is if they're going to know the law up one way and down the other. Um, Guys, real quick, too, I wanted to bring up, when I mentioned him going to Butler County Community College, this was in El Dorado. It was a suburb of Wichita, Kansas. Um, We actually had a um, fan on Twitter contact us when we mentioned that we were going to be doing the BTK story. And I wanted to kind of give a little side note to him because he grew up in the Wichita area. Um, I think he, did he get a hold of you? He did. Um, He actually wrote me an entire story so I can read it to you. Yeah, Um, I really wanted to share that at this point. I know we're kind of early in the story with him, but I thought this was really important because I thought this was amazing that we had somebody reach out to us that actually lived in the area and not only lived in the area, but sort of pseudo had a connection with Dennis Rader himself. So I'll let Casper read that because he gave us permission and we we really appreciate it. Um, His name is Matthew... I I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Matthew Krause, K-R-A-U-S-E. Um, he said I could use his name, so that's his name. His name's Matthew Krause. He actually reached out and um, was so he told me that his dad has an old yearbook from Butler County Community College, and Dennis Rader is in it. Um, which is crazy because it was seventy seventy three. 1973. Yeah. Yep. So, um, he kind of goes into a little bit of a story. Um, I'm just going to read what he said. He kind of gives a little bit of backstory and then kind of goes into what happened with him. Uh, El Dorado is a town of about 10,000 people. Um, there was a brutal double, double homicide on September 6th of 75, not far from the pool that he used to go swimming at. He was 12 years old at the time. There were two victims. The Oterio family and Catherine Bright had been killed in 1974 for a brief ter- and for a brief period of time in 75. We thought the killer what the killer of the other two was the BTK and that he had moved out of the city and into our community. However, a local man named Noble Johnson wound up conf- confessing to those two crimes. Johnson knew a few people at the local police station, including a dispatcher named Jane, who lived across the street from me. The night of the murder, someone rang her doorbell late at night. She didn't answer, but looked out the window and saw Noble Johnson's truck on the street. Jane told me he was always nice to her, but it was a bit unusual, so she didn't want to answer. Later, he turned himself in and apparently had gone to her house that night because he was so distraught over what he did. He trusted her and wanted to talk about it. Um, There was some talk that he was actually the BTK killer, but the timeline, his personal timeline did not add up. So, the Oterios were in 1974. They were all over the news. At this time, Matthew was in Cub Scouts. The house where they met was four blocks away from his house. Back in those days, parents had no problem with us kids walking home at night. Eldorado was pretty safe, and this was a safe era. 
Um, after the Ontario murders, I was terrified to walk home. Our den mother would drive me, dropping me off by the back door of my home. And every time I walked in, I had panic attacks that I would find my parents murdered. When Shirley, is it Vian? Vian? Uh, Vian. 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 Was murdered. I was just shy of 14. I had a paper route for the Wichita Eagle. It was a morning paper, so I got up early mornings every day, picked up my bundle of papers where it had been dropped off at the front of my house, rolled the papers individually, and tied them with rubber bands. <clears throat> I did this job every morning before sunup, so I was out in the dark on my bike. I remember the morning I picked up my bundle and started to roll papers, and there was a front-page story of Shirley. I was terrified to deliver papers and terrified to approach houses. Every... Enough time had passed from the Oterias and Catherine Bright that we thought we were safe. This brought a whole another a whole new shadow over the area again. In December, Nancy Fox was murdered, and I recall hearing the recording of BTK's voice. The dispatch was played on local TV stations in hopes someone might recognize it. I remember it being very calm and direct and to the point, not creepy or leery like you would think a serial killer would sound. So that made it even more terrifying. I unfortunately don't have much to report. I was in much more to report. I was in high school when all the other different letters and poems came into the police from BTK. I recall some story of how BTK would put together those letters, photocopy them in different places throughout the city to throw the police off track. I believe one of those photocopiers was in the library I used to frequent when I went to the city. It's hard to describe the ambience of the area at that time. Naturally, everyone was terrified and made sure to double lock their doors. As a kid growing up through it, I and my peers and had this image of a hulking, faceless monster on the prowl. This was even before Halloween hit the theaters. But as a kid, I did see a movie called The Curse of the Living Corpse. The killer in that film wore a black hat and a black cape, black everything, and his face was covered by a mask. So I kind of pictured BTK to look like that. But when I heard his voice on the news, I was struck by how normal he sounded. And then I went to the Wichita library, and it was almost too much to comprehend that he stood by the same copy machine like any other regular Joe. I could not imagine the monster without a black cape, hat, and mask, you know? Wow. So, think about... What really gets me and stands out to me the most in this is the fact that he would come home from his club, his meetings, terrified he would find his family murdered. Yeah. And yeah, and we'll we'll get into um, you know, when he brought up the Oteros, uh, you'll understand why he was so scared. I think any young boy, any young kid, any family member would be absolutely horrified to to discover this. Um, uh, thank you, back, Matthew. By the yeah, way, thank Matthew, you for thank that. you. We really appreciate uh, really appreciate that. What is his um? His oh he is at Catmat of KSU on Twitter. So thank you again, Matthew. We appreciate it. Um, so back to after college, he worked as uh, an assembler at the Coleman Company. So like your Coleman lanterns that you camp with. Again, he was a Cub Scout leader later on. Um, he also, which I thought this was so disturbing, he worked for eighty guys. He worked for ADT Security Services. From 1974 to 1970 to 1988. So this is actually how he was so able to case homes and even get into people's homes and actually know their floor plans because he would come in to install security systems during the time of the murders. So he'd walk through houses, he knew their floor plans, he knew the houses in and out, and even installed their 
security systems, which means he knew the passcodes. So, and what was funny was a lot yeah. of these people were installing these security systems because of the BTK killer. Yeah, because they were terrified of the BTK killer. BTK killer, and they have the BTK killer in their house. Installing their security. They have no idea. Yeah, and if you guys see pictures of him, we've posted pictures of him. He literally, um, I think it was one of the victim's sons. I think it might have actually been Dolores Davis's son described him as looking like an Elmer Fudd. <laughs> he looked like a little, which I thought was hilarious. He looked like a little weasel. I mean, he did not look like anybody that you would have thought would have been a sadistic serial killer of 10 people. Just, you never would have imagined ever. Um, he also worked as a census field officer in 1989. Um, and then in 1991, this was actually towards the end of the murders, he became a dog catcher and a compliance officer in Park City. Again, this is a suburb of, which, of Wichita, Kansas. So this is this was kind of screwed up. So he was very, uh, as if this whole story isn't going to be screwed up, but uh, he was extremely obsessive compulsive, which I think just goes along with probably a lot of serial killers. Um, and probably was one reason why it was so hard to find him. Um, neighbors recalled him as this compliance officer as being overzealous and very strict. Uh, there was actually a woman that lived in the neighborhood that he used to harass. He used to harass incessantly because her boyfriend would come visit her. He would actually come to her house and tell her, your boyfriend needs to stop coming over here. And she's like, you need to leave me alone. Like, you need to just stop coming near my property. So he broke into her home, stole her dog, and put her dog to sleep. Once he got the power to be able to kill animals... He said that that sort of, like, helped his appetite. He didn't really have much of a desire to kill people anymore because he was able to kill animals. So, yeah. it Well, clearly that didn't stop. Yeah. This guy was so fucked up. Um, he was a Cub Scout leader later on in life. He was also the president of the Church Council of His Christ Lutheran Church. Um, now we'll go into the murders. Um, so the first set of victims were on January 15th, 1974, and it was four members of the Otero family. It was the mother and father, Joseph and Julie. Um, Joseph was 38, Julie was 33. It was their youngest son, Joseph Jr., who was nine, and uh, Josephine, who was also known as Josie, and she was 11. Um, their bodies were discovered. Uh, actually, so... Charlie Otero has done interviews, and when he came home from school, he was 15, he was in the 10th grade at the time. So there were actually, one, two, three, four, there were five kids. Um, when Charlie came home, the two middle children, because Josie and Joseph Jr. would have been the youngest, the two middle children came up to Charlie when he got home. He got home, stuff was kind of weird. He saw the two kids. They were like, something's wrong with mom and dad. He went into his parents' bedroom and instantly knew that they were dead. They were bound. They had been suffocated and strangled. He found little Joseph Jr. bound, suffocated, and strangled um, in his room. And they later found, uh, actually, no, he found his parents. He called the police. I'm sorry. The police came in. He said, please let me tell Josie and Joseph, 
he didn't realize they were dead. And then that's when the police told him that Joseph Jr. and Josie were dead. Joseph Jr. was found in his room by the police and Josephine was found in the basement tied to a pipe hanging. Um, and again, like I said, even though he was a sexual sadist, he never raped any of his victims. There was DNA evidence found by Josie's body, Josephine's body, where he did ejaculate because the sensation of the strangulations or seeing ropes tighten or even ropes tightened around his own body used to sexually assault, excite him. Um, Dennis Rader used to dress up as his victims and autoerotic asphy asphyxiate himself. So he would strangle himself. He would tie himself up. He would dress in women's lingerie. He literally had done this since childhood, and he even did this to mimic his victims. So this was something that was of sexual gratification to him. But again, never raped any of them. Like, that makes any fucking difference. But I just thought I would point that out. I don't know. I'm not trying to give the guy a fucking gold star here by any means. Fuck this Congratulations, guy, you didn't rape anybody. Congratulations, you didn't rape, any, rape anybody, but you're still a fuckhead. Uh, anyway, so... Um, so uh, he later on wrote a letter that he put in a... I believe this is the same library that Matt may have been referring to. He put a letter describing the murders in detail. This was actually after some time when uh, there were a string of like child molesters that were coming forward and saying that they were the BTK killer, that they committed the Otero murders. And again, this guy was so narcissistic and OCD, he wanted to make sure he took credit. So he wrote to the police station said that it was him, said where they would find the book and the paper, and they found it. And it was like a four or five page letter, like in in great detail describing uh, the murders. Um, so after that, in 1970, let's see, 1974, he killed uh, Catherine Bright. This was actually the only victim that he stabbed. Um, I believe Catherine Bright was the victim. She was 21 years old and her brother was actually at home and he wasn't expecting anybody to be home. So he actually stabbed the brother as well. He thought the brother was dead, but the brother got away. He ran away. Um, and then he stabbed in a, in a quick hurry to kill her. He stabbed Catherine cause he was going to strangle her, stabbed her three times in the abdomen and she died at the hospital or on the way to the hospital. Um, this was April 4th, 1974. Um, and April 17th, 1977 is when he killed uh, Shirley Vianne. Um, this was the story that was probably one of the uh, hardest for me. Um, her three children were home when this happened. They were very young. Um, the oldest was just five years old. His name was Steve. Um, BTK walked... He's... So the story was that Shirley was homesick. Uh, she had sent uh, her son, Steve, to go get some soup for her. He walked right past BTK. Apparently BTK, Dennis, had broken into his home at some point prior to that and had stolen a picture of Shirley and Steve. He walked past Dennis. Dennis showed little Steve this picture, said, do you know who this is? And Steve said, no, I don't know who this is. So he goes to get the soup. He walks back. There's a knock on the door. BTK comes in again with a gun. And he realizes it's the same man. Shirley hears this commotion. And she says, you need to put the children in the bathroom. So she took the three kids, put toys in there, locked them in the bathroom. 
and uh, the two youngest kids started to freak out. Steve was able to get the door partially opened. Um, at five years old, he saw the entire murder of his mother. He saw her stripped naked. He saw her bound and gag. He saw her strangled. He saw the entire murder of his mother. Uh, this was the hardest, guys. This is probably one of the hardest interviews to listen to because he is a grown man now, but you look at his face and you still see that five-year-old child. I don't know how anybody could not still be haunted to this day from that. Um, my heart just broke for this man. Um, he said that he had a lot of issues afterwards. He wanted to become a motivational speaker. He's dealt with a lot of drug and alcohol issues. Um, all my thoughts and hopes and prayers go out to him. And of course to Charlie and all their other families, but I really hope, uh, he gets help and I really hope he still gets help because this murder was just so senseless and it was so horrible to think that her children had to witness that in any way, shape or form. Um, I, I digress. Uh, he moved on to murder Nancy Fox on December 8th, 1977. She was, uh, 25 years old. This again was by strang strangulation. Um, Actually, all of these murders were done by strangulation. Uh, really, the only one that was stabbed was Catherine Bright. And again, that was because it was a hurry because her brother was there. Um, now, Steve and Catherine's brother were able to kind of give vague descriptions of Dennis. But again, Steve was a young child. Uh, Catherine's brother had been stabbed, stabbed or shot in the head, I believe. So, I think you know, he was they, shot. He was. I'm I think sorry. The he brother was shot was in the shot. head because. You're right. You're absolutely right. Because Dennis did have a gun because mm -hmm. he actually showed a gun to Shirley's children and he did shoot Catherine's brother in the head because he wasn't expecting her, him to be there. But I think he was shot in the head twice. And even unex even after being shot in the head twice, he was still able to run to a phone to call the police. Um, and he lived. But uh, again, he would have strangled Catherine, but he decided to stab her because he wanted to hurry up and, and get it over with. Um, for whatever reason, he was really obsessed with Nancy's death. Um, he had certain victims that he just really had obsessions over, and Nancy was one of them. Um, one of his many letters that he started sending in 1978 to the local news stations were names that he wanted to be known as, because, again, he wanted to also make sure he got credit, but... Uh, Besides BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill, he wanted to also be known as the Poetry Killer. He wrote a poem for Nancy called Oh, Death to Nancy. Um, there was also a woman in 1978 after Nancy's murder that he, I'm sorry, this was in 1979. This was actually a murder that was a missed opportunity. Um, he was going to kill a woman named Anna Williams. She was 63. Uh, she was returning home from a party later than expected. He had waited in her home for hours, literally all day long, and she never came home. And he grew tired and sick of it and left, and he became obsessed and absolutely livid because he felt like she was his missed kill. So he wrote this poem about her called, Anna, Why Didn't You Appear?, um, they read it on last podcast on the left. They actually read it in a really funny way. If you guys want to listen to it, um, it's hilarious actually, cause the guy was just so weird. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, of course he wasn't known as the poetry killer because his poetry fucking sucked. Maybe that's why. Um, yeah, I know. I was really watching the documentary weird. and they were showing a poem he wrote. And I'm like, that's not a poem. That's words. Yeah. It's a nothing of a poem. I don't even know the rhyming scheme here. Yeah. It was fucking weird. It was so bizarre. It was really weird. Um, so after Nancy Fox, um, there was kind of a lull in between murders. Um, I think this was around the time. Okay. Oh, that's right. Between 1977 and 1985. So that would have put us at, uh, almost 10 years, eight years. Eight years. Um, I think that uh, Carrie was born in 1978, and then I think a few years later, um, Brian was born. So uh, he was focusing on his kids, focusing on his kids, raising his kids, you know, being a Cub Scout leader, just being a dad, doing that thing. Um, But it did resume in 1985. On April 27th, he killed uh, Marine Hedge. she actually was a neighbor of his, which is really bizarre. She literally lived just a few houses down the street. Carrie, Carrie said she knew her. Carrie remembered riding her bike past her home and seeing her out working in her garden and they would wave to each other. And he, yeah, she, she knew her. Um, she lived right down the street. Um, he killed her again on April 27th, 1985. And this was like, this gets any creepier. Um, he took her dead body to his church. Um, obviously he had keys to the church. Um, he dressed her up. He put her body in various bondage positions. He took Polaroid pictures of it that he kept. Um, he wrapped her in black plastic sheets and dumped her body in a remote ditch. Um, this is actually something else, uh, to bring up to note about Carrie, his daughter, Carrie, she was questioned by the police in 2005 after Dennis was arrested. And she had distinctly remembered back when she was about seven or eight years old around that night in April of 1985 that she had woken up in the middle of the night with her mom and that her dad was not in the home. He was not in the house at all, at all. And this was in the middle of the night. She distinctly remembered that as a child. I don't know why she never questioned it later. But, you know, that would well, definitely Well, I'd say her be... mom questioned it, but, you know, he probably had a legitimate excuse working right. late at the church, something like that, you know, especially Whatever. because, like, I know my old pastor, he would spend hours at the church. It would be two, three, four in the morning, and he'd be at the church studying. Right. So, I mean, like, if he used that as an excuse, it's a legitimate excuse. Right. Exactly. Um... And then from there, he killed uh, Vicki Weggerly on September 16th, 1986 in Wichita. Pretty much all of these happened in Wichita, except for Marine, which happened in Park City, which was a suburb that he lived in. Again, she was a close neighbor. Um, he killed, again, uh, Vicki Weggerly, September 16th, 1986. And then um, his last victim was Dolores Davis. She was 62. Um he killed her on uh, January 19th in 1991. Um, and then he goes silent. We don't hear anything. Uh, we literally don't I really hear wonder anything. what happened. I really wonder what made him just stop. Um, 
Okay, so this was the this was the information that I got. There were actually two things. So in 1989, there was a court TV uh, crime writer and true crime author. His name was David Lohr that wrote a story about BTK. And then in 2003, Dennis Rader read a story in the local news that he either read a story in the local newspaper, which would have been the Wichita Eagle, or saw something on Cake TV, which was... That happened to be the station that he used to watch a lot. There were actually several interviews that were done with news reporters that were that worked there at the time. Um, he actually appeared on an episode of Cake TV. He was interviewed when he was a compliance officer. Something about being a dog catcher or something. There's there's footage of him being interviewed on the local news, like. It's crazy of all things. And these were the same. One of the reporters later went on to interview him, had like a 20 minute interview with him after he was arrested when he was in prison. But um, so, again, the story comes up by this true crime author. He finds out that this uh, lawyer was going to write this unauthorized biography about BTK. And there were all these stories that were getting ready to come out about BTK that obviously were unsubstantiated because they had no idea at the time of who he was. Um, because by 2004, BTK was considered a cold case. Well, Dennis being the narcissist that he was, he wasn't gonna when he started, that. no, when he started hearing these stories coming out, and there was this book that was going to come out, and he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I am not going to let people turn around and take credit for what I did. Because again, he wanted to make sure everybody knew who he was, but he damn sure wasn't going to get caught. He was going to go out on his own. He even said after. Um, he had said in a couple interviews that even after Dolores Davis, he was going to do one more murder and then ride off into the sunset and just make sure everybody knew who BTK was, maybe still live in fear a bit, but never be caught. That was it. That was going to be his last one. Um, but which is a crazy thing, because if he wasn't a narcissist, he would have gotten away with it. Yeah. That's he how a lot of these work. He would have gotten guys. away with it. They want to make sure that they get credit, but they don't want to get caught. Right. So he was such a narcissist. He was like, no. Yeah. So that's pretty much what prompted him to do this. He was pretty, like I said, he was pretty well okay in 91. He had this compliance officer gig. He's killing people's dogs. He's harassing his neighbors. He's still getting that power, but, you know, he's not murdering anybody. So he was kind of starting to get urges in between that time. But definitely when he find out about this book coming out, he's like, no, we're, we're done. We're not having it. So all of a sudden, um, the Wichita Eagle starts getting all of these letters from Bill Thomas Kilman, again, BTK. Um, and, uh, a lot of, one of the letters claimed that he had murdered Vicki Weggerly. Um, he had photos of the crime scene, a photocopy of her driver's license. Again, how Matt mentioned that he would use this library in Wichita to photocopy Vicky's driver's license that he stole. Um, they were not sure if Weggerly was definitively killed by BTK at that time. The police didn't really know. But because he obviously had evidence, they they were able to figure it out. Um they had DNA samples from BTK, not only from the semen samples at Josie Otero's murder, but apparently Vicki Weggerly did scratch him. So they were able to get a, a fingerprint, or I'm sorry, a DNA evidence from underneath her fingernails. Um, 
I did want to point out that in one of the letters that he sent, he referred to something called Factor X. This is something that Dennis Rader has brought up even to this day. Factor X is apparently this demon that possessed him that caused him to do the murders. He says that it's, it's a demon that's been in him since childhood that has caused these psychosexual fantasies. Guys, we've done episodes on that before. You know that me and Casper are definitely believers in demonic possessions and in demons, but I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. This is just like the Ted Bundy bullshit that he tried to say some demon made him obsess about porn and that would cause him to rape dead bodies and kill women. Dennis Rader's trying to pass off this same shit. You're just a, no, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying that it was a demon. I think he was very mentally disturbed. And well, he even said it in his... Which is Confession obvious. Tapes, like most of the time, he was like, "It was a sexual fantasy, yes." Like, just clearly, you just have a kink, and you need to not have this kink. Well, apparently, he said to one of the. I think he actually even said to one of the victims, like, and I think she thought that he was gonna let her live because he said, "I just need to act out this sexual fantasy. That's all I need to do." Mm-hmm. Like, is that the one that he said he was gonna have sex with her? And then he ended up killing her and yeah. then not having sex with her. Yeah. Because yeah. he said, I was just talking to her, trying to calm her down. She had a cigarette. I think and that I was, was like, a- just the way you're talking about this is just like, you're like, yeah, she had a cigarette and, you know, she was trying to calm her down. I was talking to her. I was like, I just need to have sex with you. And I was like, what? Yeah. I think that was either Nancy or Vicky. I think it was. Yeah. yeah and we'll get into that too about his confession that he ultimately gives in 2005 it's oh my god it's really sick it's just it's so calm it's eerie like it really is like the way that we're talking to you right now is the way that he is talking about the murders yep just how oh just like if you went to your friend and was like oh hey um i need the ingredients on how to make that cake can you give me the recipe if you were telling them how to do it same thing Super nonchalant. So I grabbed this, uh, so I grabbed this plastic bag and, um, put it over her head. Yep. And, um, mm, I strangled her. I, I suffocated her with it. I thought she was dead. I thought I put her down, but she wasn't. Yep. Literally, that's how he talks. It's fucked up. Yeah, they were It's, ob- it's really yeah. fucked up. His victims were objects to him. That's the bottom line. It was a, it was to justify a means. That was it. That's all. It was the same as Bundy. He had no, um, it's reported later that he gave some emotion, but I don't believe he had any emotion whatsoever about any of his victims. I, I don't believe he did at all. It was saying he, I remember reading that it said that he cried while listening to the victims' families. I don't know if that was for show, but considering the way he talked about it, I don't feel like he felt remorse. I heard that too. That apparently he did, but I don't, I don't believe he did. I don't know. Um, he did. Okay. So he started sending the letters to the Wichita Eagle, uh, again in 2004, the cake television station, K-A-K-E in Wichita. Um, they received letters, fake IDs, a word puzzle. Um, there was a package, uh, found near a stop sign in Wichita. Um, one of the packages had a cereal box for a serial killer. He, I mean, he, oh God, he had a terrible sense of humor on top of being a freak weirdo. Um, Funny story, like, actually. Let's let's throw in a little humor there. 
So when I was a kid, and my mom was, you know, my mom, I would watch serial killer stuff with my mom, right? So I was a kid, and my mom, I, I was, I heard the term serial killer. And me being the literal child that I was, I was like, why would anybody want to kill cereal? <laughs> there you go. There's a funny story from my childhood. <laughs> Captain Crunch done piss somebody the fuck <laughs> off. Fuck these Fruit Loops. <laughs> It shows me money. No. Um, bitch, but I have my money. Oh my god, that's hilarious. Um, I was a very literal child. Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty funny, though, seriously. If you wouldn't know what cereal and cereal you would have. My mom created a monster obsessed How with cereal you know? killers after finding out about the fact that they don't actually kill cereal. Like, how would you have any idea? Um... So he, <laughs> we had to throw that out there, guys. I just thought that was too funny. I, I had to bring that up because he did that and he thought he was being funny. And it's like, but how would you know otherwise? Hmm. Um, so pretty much all throughout 2004, he was sending all kinds of letters. He was sending photocopies of IDs from the victims because, again, he kept... Um, in his Park City office where he was a compliance officer, the police found a... Um, uh, he kept a binder with all of the all of his souvenirs that he had from his victims. This binder in the file cabinet in his office. It had their IDs. It had all kinds of little trinkets. He even had um, newspaper clippings that he would ke- that he would keep from the Wichita Eagle, reporting on BTK, reporting on the letters that he would send, photocopies of the letters that he would send, so on and so forth. Um, they found uh, one of them was Nancy Fox. Um, he started also leaving packages with dolls that would resemble the victims. One of them was Nancy Fox. They would be bound and gagged with rope. There was another one. Excuse me. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> it's that R A N W that A N W cream soda causing that gas. Um, I told you. Lisa came out the attic and out the basement. Um, <laughs> Sorry. That was awesome. Cream soda. Cream soda. <laughs> oh my god. I never made that reference. Good one, Cream Casper. Cream soda. She had to do it. Told I'm you so guys sorry. we were gonna we get light. Keep it light, guys. We told you we were gonna try to keep it light. It's getting. It was getting. It's a been a heavy. lot of information. It was getting a I little like... heavy. It was getting a little heavy. We had to throw it in there. I had to burp. I'm sorry. I'm to say and today. I had to burp. And I had to burp. Um. So this was this was actually kind of a turning point. He was at a Home Depot where there was surveillance surveillance tape that caught his black Jeep Cherokee. And um, he had thrown a box, a cereal box, again, that somebody found that threw in the trash. But um, apparently when they did find it after he had sent a postcard to Cake TV station, um, the box contained a doll that was dressed as Josephine Otero. And um, the reason why they specifically knew that it was her is that there was a noose tied tied around the doll's neck. And the other end of the rope was tied to a pipe. And again, Josephine was strangled. Body was tied to a pipe. This was the position of how they found her. So that was obviously symbolic of her. Um, He wrote a letter. This was one of the last letters that he wrote. This one was actually directly to the police. 
He had wrote to the police that if he sent them a floppy disk, would there be a way that they could trace it? And he said to answer them back by putting a local ad in the Wichita Eagle to say if the disk would be safe. Um, they, of course, wrote them back like, oh, sure. Yeah, your disk will be fine. This is when it all falls apart because he's a fucking idiot. Um, or maybe just secretly he wanted to get caught. I have no idea. But on February 16th, 2005, he sent a purple uh, Memorex floppy disk. <laughs> Disc to dick. He sent a purple floppy dick. Sent a purple floppy dick to the local Wichita newspaper. Um, no. <laughs> Guys, I'm sorry. Oh my good Jesus. A purple floppy dick. That I'm going to send though, you my purple floppy dick. That has all the evidence written on the side of it. And the balls of... All the murders that he did. No, I'm sorry. These nuts. Good God! Did you imagine that one? That would have, that would have probably made the story a little bit more interesting. I would have been like, "Sir, we have received a dildo." Just as <laughs> weird. I and why purple? Maybe that was his favorite color. Nobody knew. Sir, we have received like a floppy purple a dildo, total... and I'm confused. What should we do with it? Yeah, it's got a lot of writing on it. Can we put this into evidence? Not really quite sure what to do. Um, so. Um, so obviously the police are able to trace that there's, there's something called metadata that was embedded into every single floppy disk. And once they were able to turn it over to their IT department, um, they were able to find embedded in a Microsoft word document, the words Christ Lutheran church and the name Dennis. That was where the document was uh, modified to. They did, they do a quick internet search of uh, Christ Lutheran Church. They find Dennis Rader, BTK, who was the president of the church council. Um, when they knew that they had the black Jeep, Jeep Cherokee from the Home Depot surveillance tape, they go to Dennis Rader's address. What do they see? A black Jeep Cherokee parked in the driveway. Um they still did not feel like they had enough evidence. I mean, I know this kind of seems like that's open and shut at this point. Like, we got this disc. It's got the name on it. We find the truck in the driveway. We got this guy. But still, that can all be considered circumstantial. So Who's to say he know, wasn't being framed? You know? Right. <clears throat> you don't know. That, that even it, it sounds open and shut to some people, but in the eyes of the law. And again... Just like Bundy, this guy went to college for criminal justice. Like, he's going to be able, if you don't have hardcore evidence on him, he's going to be able to skirt past it. Which is why I still think it's stupid that he sent this disc in the first place. He should have known that, that it was going to have something on it. But anyway, um, what they actually ended up doing. So they found out that Dennis had children. Um, his daughter at the time was... In school at Kansas State, um, she actually studied education, and um, she had had a pap smear at the local medical clinic that year. So without her knowledge, the Wichita police sent a warrant to subpoena her pap smear, and when they did a DNA swab, the DNA matched. It matched the um, DNA that they found under Vicki Wegerly's fingernails. It matched the semen sample that they found at the Otero murders. It was an exact match. So they've got the DNA. 
to link Dennis Rader to BTK. He was arrested um, on his way home on February 25th, 2005. So they had actually, after they had found the Jeep Cherokee, the Wichita police had put him under strict surveillance until the DNA evidence came back from his daughter's pap, daughter Carrie's pap smear. So they knew that every day at noon that he would go home from his Park City office to have lunch with his wife. So on February 25th, 2005, when he was just a few home, few houses down from his home, they all surrounded his vehicle. They pulled him over. They pulled him out of the car. They said, uh, do you know why we're here? And he said, I think I have my suspicions. Can you please tell my wife I'm going to be late for lunch? I remember literally one of them yeah. saying too, like it was a, it was an interview with the um, one of the cops and he said, he said it so just solemnly. Yep. Just very calmly. Calmly. Just let me know. He's like, it was, it was very disturbing how he said that. He actually knew the cop's <laughs> name too. He knew him by name because he, again, not only had be, he'd been writing to all of the local newspapers, the local news stations. He had also been writing to the police as well in his time, taunting them, sending them clues, sending them all these photocopies and things, so on and so forth. Um, yeah. Uh, so basically, during a a search of his home, uh, the ATF, the FBI, they seized computer equipment. They found um, a black pantyhose that he had used during a lot of the strangulations. Um, they found underneath the floorboards of the homes pictures, pictures that he had taken of himself. Again, like I said, he would dress up, tie himself off, had these autoerotic asphyxiations that he would do. Um, there were even pictures of him. So he would sneak away during some of the Cub Scout outings when he was with his son and to uh, satisfy these autoerotic asphyxiations, he would dig holes and bury himself in them while he would have ropes around him, a mask on his face, lingerie on, even got caught one time because he could, couldn't unbury and untie himself at one point and kind of panicked. So, um, yeah. They also found, again, I think I had mentioned in the file cabinet at the city hall, all these binders and newspaper clippings and stuff he had he had sent. Um, the chief of police announced at a press conference that day that BTK was arrested. And obviously this put so many people in the Wichita area, their hearts and minds to rest and finally brought solace to these families, brought solace to... to uh, Charlie Otero brought Char solace to Steve Shirley's uh, son and her two kids brought solace to Catherine Bright's brother, um, Dolores Davis's son, all the families of all of the victims finally brought them some justice once he was arrested and able to be convicted. Um, it was on February 28th, 2005 that he was charged with 10 counts of first degree murder all 10 counts for all 10 victims that were mentioned. Um, soon after his arrest, there was an anonymous source alleging that uh, Raider was connected to other murders. So there was a few weeks span of time that they were trying to investigate other areas in and around Kansas that they thought he might have been involved in, but none of that came to light ever. By March 5th, um, Multiple news sources said that Raider had confessed to 10 murders, 
Those were the only 10 murders that he had done. They had evidence. Those were the only 10 murders that he was being, 10 murders he was being charged with. Um, his bail was set at $10 million. He was given a public defender. On May 3rd, uh, the judge entered a not guilty plea on Dennis Rader's behalf because he did not speak at his own arraignment. But by June 27th, 2005, on his trial date, Rader pled guilty. Um, the judge at the trial on June 27, 2005, let him describe the murders in detail. Um, the video is on YouTube, guys. It is 46 minutes and 38 seconds long. And again, like Casper described, it's basically like he's reading off a grocery list or giving somebody a recipe for a cake. It is so nonchalant. It has no feeling or emotions whatsoever. It is very matter of fact. It is very narcissistic and OCD and complete and total detail because he was absolutely obsessed for years. Again, like I said, he what he gave every detail he could to the police and to the news stations that he was writing to because he didn't want to be caught but he wanted to make sure that he got all of the credit. He did not want anybody else to have credit. That's why I said for that little span of time that they thought that maybe he would have been responsible for other murders, trust me, he would have come right out and said it immediately because this guy was such an OCD narcissist. He wanted to make sure that if there was any murder out there that he was responsible for, that he was the one that he ultimately got credit for. He wanted to make sure he took credit for it. Um, during his August 18th sentencing, where the victims were allowed to make statements, uh, Rader gave a somewhat 30-minute apology that the prosecutor said was likened to an Academy Awards speech. Um, it, it was a really weird statement, um, but a lot of people described it as an often-observed phenomenon by psychopaths. They have a complete inability to understand emotional content of language. They have no empathy. Um, he just ram rambled on. He made several biblical references, said something about forgiveness being a concept. It was just really strange. It was almost, I mean, he just clearly knew that he had no compassion because he felt no empathy. He was a psychopath total sociopath, total narcissist. Every single victim was an object. They were an ends to justify the means. He didn't care. He just didn't care. Um, so he was ultimately sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences, which carried a minimum of 175 years. Unfortunately, at this time, there was no death penalty in the state of Kansas. On August, August 19th, he was moved to the El Dorado Correctional Facility, where he is to this day. Solitary um, confinement. Yep. This is for his protection. Um, he is only allowed out for one hour a day for exercise, and he's only allowed to shower up to three times per week. By 2006, he was allowed a TV and a radio. He can read magazines and books, um, and he is able to write letters. Um, there were some other investigations in around his arrest. Um, police, again, there were police in surrounding areas that did investigations on cold case files. Obviously, none of these came back to Raider because like I said before, if there were any that he was responsible for, he would have came right out and said that he did it. Um, he did later state in a police interview that there were a lot of lucky people out there. Wasn't he stalking a person before he got arrested? And they let her know? 
Wasn't he looking at like one person like I, before he got arrested and then they ended up sending her a letter? Was was that the woman that ultimately wrote the book I Survived BTK? I think that was I think that may have been her. Cause that wasn't um no, that wasn't Anna Williams. Anna Williams was the one that he waited in her home all day for her to come home. Yeah, and no, this was one that he was stalking as they were, as they arrested, when they arrested him. And he, he said something about it and then they eventually told her and I think she left the state. She was so freaked out by it. Okay. Uh, let me see. Um... Uno momento. No, that was actually the one that was, I survived VTK. I apologize. That was a book that was written by Charlie Otero because he, his family was murdered, but he obviously survived. Um, you know, guys, I apologize. Yeah, I had heard that before. Um, and I, I'm not sure if that, cause see, like I said, there was the report about the neighbor that he was stalking, whose dog that he was killed. Um, there was also reports of someone who worked in the office with him that he was stalking. Um, she was his boss or he was her boss rather. And, um, he had been stalking her and she was just very freaked out by him. Um, but yeah, there may have been. I think that may have... Because he did say that he was going to have one more kill. I, that was I, actually on documentary, though. That's why I don't think we can yeah, find that. Um, yeah, I think I, they listed that. They said that on a documentary that he had was in the middle of stalking someone new. Okay. And then... They actually even told her about it. That she may have freaked the, her out so much that, that she That may left. have been the co-worker or the neighbor. Yeah. Like I said, there was a co-worker and a neighbor that he had been stalking. The one neighbor, he killed her dog. The co-worker may have been the one. I, I apologize. I don't have a name, but there was, it was not, I don't believe it was called I Survived BTK, but there was a book out there that she did write about it. Cause like I said, he did have one more murder in mind around all this time that he was sending these letters and that was going to be kind of his coup de grace. That was what he was going to go out in a blaze of glory on that nobody would find him, but that would be enough to, su- to, to suppress him and he would be able to ride off in the sunset and be done with it. Um, but like I said, he's still in prison. Um, the, uh, I think that in about 2012 is when Carrie stopped having correspondence with him. I think she did a few years after he was arrested and then stopped ultimately, um, once she was able to forgive him. Um, I will go into a little bit of detail about the family now. Um, so the, the house that the family did live in, um, has been completely demolished. It no longer exists in Kansas. It's just an empty lot sitting there. Um, Paula immediately after he was arrested was granted a, uh, emergency divorce. Um, this was on July 26, 2005. This is waiving the normal waiting period. So immediately they were divorced. Um, and she fled the state of Kansas. She lives a very private secluded life. I wouldn't, I would, wouldn't think you would want it any other way. I wouldn't want anybody to know where the fuck I am, especially knowing my name and knowing who I was married to. Not that that's any of her fault, but, you know, obviously at first she was in denial about it. I don't know, guys. You think you know someone and I, I don't know. I don't know. 
he was he was very smart. This guy was definitely a Jekyll and Hyde. He was able to hide so much from so many people. I mean, he did, like I said, there were a few weird vibes that neighbors got, but his family, even Carrie herself, said he never raised his voice. He never yelled and screamed at their mother. He was never violent or showed any of that in any way, shape, or form. There was only one incident that she distinctly remembers as a kid when Brian was, well, like a teenager when they were a little bit older. When Brian was older, he was being disrespectful during dinner. They got into a physical altercation. And of course, because this this is kind of his modus operandi, Dennis tried to strangle Brian. And he realized what he was doing. He stopped and he was very remorseful. But again, Carrie said that was the only time she ever noticed this. Otherwise, he was never violent in any way as a father. Um, Brian, it, it, I nobody ever really ever mentions him. And I was really surprised that I was even able to find a name. Um, I found this again on uh, Oxygen, did a show about it. I found on their website. Um, Brian was an Eagle Scout in Kansas until 2005, around the time that Dennis was arrested. Um, he later left and worked, he joined the Navy and worked on a Navy sub base in Connecticut. Um, as of 2016, he was enrolled in college and was not married and did not have any children. Uh, so I was not able to find any other information about him past 2016. And this was all information that was given secondhand by his sister, Carrie. Um, Again, his daughter's name is Carrie Rawson. She is married and she lives in Michigan. She has two children. Um, Around the time that BTK was arrested in 2005, um, she had met her husband while she she was in college at Kansas State University. And then after she graduated, they got married and moved to Michigan where she found a job as a teacher. Um, she She ended up retiring from being a teacher um, became a stay-at-home mom to take care of her kids. And then, again, she wrote the book uh, this past year called A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. Um, she, again, like I said, I think she kept in touch with Dennis until about 2012. Um, there, These are some quotes from Carrie herself. Um, this is in writing about the book, A Serial Killer's Daughter. She says, quote, talking about it has helped heal me in a way nothing else could. After his arrest, I fell into a deep hole of shock and grief, chaos, and confusion. It took me a very long time to reconcile the man I knew and had grown up to love and grow up next to with the man I was hearing these horrible things about, unquote. Um, She said even years after the arrest, she still suffers from anxiety, PTSD, and depression. So that was kind of part of her therapy in writing this book. Um, He himself, Dennis, has given a response to Carrie writing this book. Um, It's really strange. He almost acts like he takes credit for it. He says that it's a self-help book quote, to her effort to helping other families to recognize a family member's problem, unquote, he writes. Um, He does say a lot of very complimentary things about her, though. He says that I taught her how to garden, love love plants, animals, fishing, camping. We hiked the Great Canyon. I cried when she was married. My little girl has finally grown up. Um, But he did say that he wasn't sure how the book was written and how far she threw me under the bus. But I did break her heart. And other family members, coworkers, friends, relatives, and others can certainly see that she was right. 
Um, he doesn't mention anything about the victims. Um, and again, he never really talked much about any of the victims after the murders. Um, you know, we did mention that uh, he after the victim statements did cry. Um, it was even said that on the police ride from the courtroom to the El Dorado Correctional Facility that after, I guess he, I don't think he, he didn't cry actually during the um, sentencing on August 18th. Um, it was afterwards the police said that during the ride to the prison that I guess it must have overcome him with emotion, and that's when he started crying. But who's he to was know probably crying if that he was, was any, caught? Right. He knew he was going to prison. He knew for he was going to prison life. for 175 <laughs> years. Like that's I, not I that think long. that was, I, yeah, you know, that's check only that a off. few. How well, long did clearly, made it? No, just kidding. Clearly, um, what we have learned in all of this is that you cannot send a purple floppy dick <laughs> to the cops, or you will get caught. Yeah, you will get caught. Yeah, don't do that. No sending purple floppy dicks. Yeah, yeah, don't do that. You don't will that. get caught. Or discs. Um, hashtag don't send purple floppy dicks. Hashtag yeah, don't you do will it. get caught. You will get caught. Hashtag um, serial killers be knowing. <laughs> so I actually thought this was sort of, oh, this just like really goes back to just how incredibly narcissistic he was. He was actually mad at the cops that they lied to him. That they told him, oh, no, no, we won't be able to trace it. And he goes, you lied to me. You guys actually, so there's a whole video of his interrogation. And he's like, why Why would you do that? Why would you lie to me like that? Why would you tell me that this disc wasn't going to be able to be traced? And they were like, uh, Dennis, because you were murdering people <laughs> and we wanted to catch you. So you could stop killing people, you fuck. No, they didn't say that part. I just do that. <laughs> you fuck face. Um, yeah, fuck that guy. Uh, so anyway, um, a couple quick things. Um, in the media, uh, again, we mentioned his daughter writing the book. Um, so there was the movie A Good Marriage that's on Netflix that uh, Stephen King wrote a book about. He describes that being um, inspired by BTK. Um, apparently, Carrie didn't appreciate this. Uh, Stephen King did reach out to her directly to apologize, but she felt that the film and the story were very exploitive to her family and to the victims. Um, there was also, which a lot of you guys may be very familiar with. So if anybody watched the wonderful series on Netflix, again, referencing my Netflix, Mindhunter, which was Bless. such a great show. Basically, the show was about the infancy of the FBI's criminal profiling unit. And it follows these two cops who basically start to interview serial killers along the way. Um, they feature Ed Kemper. It's just such phenomenal acting. And it basically gives you a play-by-play -play of how the FBI in the, in the 60s and 70s started to build a uh, criminal psychology unit and really focus on what a serial killer was because for many years there was no definition of that. Nobody knew what that was. There were all these murders happening, but nobody knew exactly what to define these killers as. Nobody had a reason, a rhyme or reason as to why they were doing it or any way to connect it. So they were starting to look more in the FBI into the psychology of it. Um, there are many little 
so the first season, um, the second season, I will be coming out later this year that I've read on some reports. I'm just going to say season, it better fucking be. Yeah, I've been waiting a long time for this. I've been waiting a really long ass time for like this. Seems like it's been literally forever. Um, they they kind of shoot these little, small, little scenes throughout the episodes where they're set in and around Park City, Kansas. And uh, it's this guy that's got a mustache that's credited as an ATD, ADT service man. It's Dennis Rader. Uh, they've already said it's Dennis Rader. They said that when they release season two of Mindhunter that they will feature him. They will acknowledge him as Dennis Rader. Um, yeah, that's going to be really interesting because it will definitely, it'll, it'll actually fit within the whole timeline because they kind of start off in the 60s. They mentioned Charles Manson, all different kinds of murders like that. And then again, they kind of show these little, they call them vignettes in between of like this guy breaking into a home and this guy coming home and this guy like, yeah. And as soon as I saw it, because the actor that they got looked so much Looks like, just like him. boy, they made sure that they did a really good job to make sure he looked like Dennis Rader. But as soon as I saw him... As soon as I saw him in the whole ADT get up and the whole thing, I was like, that's Dennis Rader. I knew it because this is a case that I was, you know, there's a few things that I researched that I was not familiar with, but um, I was pretty familiar with the case. And I think just because of the bind, torture, kill, and just the the weird sexual gratification of all of this. I mean, he was really obsessive about this. He used to draw these pictures he used to have these these porns of women being bound and gagged and tied up and strangled and nooses around their necks and he was really 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 obsessive about this like i said literally from puberty all the way up from a very young age and just had these really psychosexual fantasies and these urges and that was like the only way that he could quote unquote get off per se listen i don't know about y'all but but I enjoy my women not being hung or strangled or not able to move. Yeah, I would prefer <laughs> that they not be bind or tortured. I don't I need that. I like women that are free. We don't need that. <laughs> we don't need that. We're all about the love. I know everybody's here. got weird kinks and stuff like that. Shout out to Ruby on Let's Watch Horror Podcast. You and your fucking kinks. Look, guys. But seriously, like, for... We for, all got them. We all have kinks. I know I do. do not... <laughs> No. No. There are some not. that's just not okay. No. Okay. Let's talk about that for a minute. Therapy session. <laughs> if it's with the consent yes. of a partner, then you're perfectly fine. Do if it's your a thing. BSM thing and y'all are into binding and stuff like that, that and she's okay with it. He, she, he, she, they, they we, them, we, us, they, whatever, whatever you do, whatever pronoun as you prefer. As long as everybody is in consent and everybody is willing, you know, willing and able all the way, shape or form, all the way around, then we're good. But you you do your thing. When you're breaking into people's homes, when this is violent, when you're killing people, when you're doing shit like this, no, we are not condoning this. We do not condone this. That's a big fat no. No, no, no. I'm going to say a big fuck no and fuck you to Dennis Rader, um, to BTK. So, uh, yeah. Reminds me of Y2K. Ugh. 
just as bad. <laughs> no. Because um, it didn't happen. No, no, no. Probably would have been worse if it did. Um, yeah. So, guys, that's what I have on uh, Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. Um, yeah, like I said, we, it just, this one sort of fit to do. And I think kind of going along with the timing that we did Bundy with the documentary and the movie coming out that this one with, um, a lot of the interviews and things that have been done with Carrie, his daughter's book being out, uh, and all of the interviews and things that were done, it kind of renewed this entrance, this interest, um, 14, it's been 14 years later since he was caught. And, uh, I think just in all of it, because the story is so interesting. There was such a, this started in 1974 and then there was such a big gap. It went from 1974 to 1978, then to 1985, then to 1991. And then by 2004, it's a cold case, but then he gets all pissed off because people are going to start taking credit and writing books about what he did without all the facts. And he wasn't having that. So... That's how his big dumb ass got caught because he wanted to make sure he got all the fucking credit. And you because know of a purple floppy dick. Yeah, because of that. Yeah, we're not going to get past that. I'm never going to live that down <laughs> as long as I live, guys. Oh my God. I'm sorry. A little parched. My mouth gets dry. Your lips get stuck together. Discs comes out. Dicks. And then. It's just easier to go. say dicks than disc. It is. It really is. It totally is. Y'all try. Don't, don't send purple floppy anything to anyone ever. Especially if it can be incriminating in a court of law. That's all I'm saying. Truth. So take that advice with ya. Anyway. <laughs> so next <laughs> month for our true crime will be Jeffrey Dahmer. Which is Yay! my personal favorite. One of Becky's personal favorites, and our friend Mackenzie will be here because he's her favorite. And we're just all about the fucked up right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, seriously, guys. I was just telling my hubby, and I was telling Casper here that uh, I can seriously only do these once a month. These <laughs> just get so emotional and... You know, like we said, um, again, really quickly, um, I just wanted to name... Joseph Otero, Julie Otero, Joseph Otero Jr., Josephine Otero, Catherine Bright, Shirley Vian, Nancy Fox, Marina Hedge, Vicki Weggerly, and Dolores Davis. Um, may you all rest in peace and all of our condolences and love and light to all of the families of those victims and um, love and light to uh, to Paula, to Carrie, and to Brian. We all hope that they are healing in all of this and continue to heal. Um, and, uh, I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledged everybody that was involved because these were all completely senseless. And, uh, yeah, you know, there were a lot of people, Charlie Otero and, uh, Steve Shirley's son that said he should be beaten to death. I could totally understand that. Um, he's rotting away. So he's not dead, but he will be soon. And he's, getting you know yeah he's kind of getting off light but it's better that he's in there and not out yeah. because nobody can be affected by this asshole anymore um real quick guys i did want to give us a quick rundown of what we're going to be seeing next month um like casper said with our end of the month serial killers we're going to have Dahmer with our girl kenzie um but next week guys Wait, can i do it oh do it, I do it do it do it do it next week's episode is going to be La Yorona! <laughs> oh, sorry, we had to do it. We had to do it! We had to do it! 
Get prepared to hear a lot of that next week. That stupid fucking song. We have to. It just works too well. Just works too well. I I know Um, I got all of you on Twitter doing it. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, we had to. Um, So in next month, and that's going to be later on in the month, but they're going to have the great movie by Guillermo del Toro. So we just thought that that's just going to be a perfect topic. And James Wan. I know. And James Wan. Yeah, shout out to James Wan. Um, Curse of La Llorona. It looks amazing. I know nothing about this story. I have never heard of La Llorona. I never heard of it prior to the movie. I know it's all very, uh, it's Spanish, Mexican folklore, and I just cannot wait to start researching it and deep diving into it. Um, The following Wednesday after that, guys, we are doing an entire Jordan Peele episode. I am so freaking excited about this. We are going to be, we are going to be rewatching Get Out. We are going to be seeing Us. Um, there are going to be a tons of spoilers for Get Out. We aren't going to give a lot of spoilers for us, even though we are going to see it, but, um, it's going to be an entire Jordan Peele episode. We cannot wait to give that man props. He is completely revolutionizing horror right now. Also, Um, I would just like to give him props for real for saying that he's never going to use a white man for his movies because he's seen that before. Yep. And, I literally uh, want have. to clap for him. That it, was yep. awesome. His exact quote was, I don't see myself casting a white dude as the lead. Not that I don't like white dudes, but I've seen that movie. And we have. And it's working. It's working so great. He's making phenomenal horror films. So props to George. That's why we're doing a whole episode on him. Because he's 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 doing something right now. He's getting up there with James Wan and his horror. He's... Of going about it in the psychological direction, which is, I'm all about that. I'm all about psychological horror. So. And also, there is absolutely no reason why we cannot see black people as leads in horror movies. Bless. I'm black. I love horror. I grew up with horror. My mom was black. My mom loved horror. Black people love horror movies. And we are really tired of being the stereotypical sidekicks that get killed first. Really sick and tired of it. White people are tired of it. Black people are hey, tired. Hey, Jordan. Of it. Literally, Hill. everybody that is a horror fan is sick and tired of the black stereotype and horror. We're tired of it, and that is why movies like Get Out and Us are beating box office records because literally all races, all sexes, all genres are tired of seeing the same white horror movies. We want this type of horror. We all do. Hey, Jordan Peele, make one where the white guy dies first. Yeah, let's do that one. <laughs> we haven't seen us yet. Do so it. We don't really know how this happens. Oh, that's so true. We'll, maybe we'll maybe wait. a white we'll guy wait. dies. We'll see it. We'll see. <laughs> um, and then the following one after that, prior to Dahmer, will be about Kentucky's Waverly Hills Sanatorium. It is apparently the most haunted place in America. Um I want to go so bad. I don't even know if we'll be able to make a road trip in between that time. Probably not going to happen. Probably not going to happen then, then, but we're going to make a road trip. We will, we will happen at some point, but we cannot wait to make a deep dive and research into that. Uh, There have been so many ghost shows, ghost hunters, ghost adventures, paranormal of America, just scariest places on earth. They've done so many, so many, so many shows and paranormal investigations of this place. And we cannot wait. So April is going to be a great month. My birthday. Um, March was a great month. Yay, it's Taurus. It's my April. birthday in April. Get Catherine my stubborn D-day ass on. on. Um, <laughs> we love our Tauruses. We love our Tauruses. We are loyal to a fault, but stubborn as fuck. Yeah. That okay. is literally the best description I can give you. 
<laughs> Gemini's got ours too, guys. So we all have our goods and bads and uglies and all of our signs. So um, yeah, March has been a wonderful month. We love you guys. We thank you to all of our loyal subscribers, our new subscribers. Um, keep listening. Uh, April is going to be a great month. May, we're going to just keep bringing back more and more and more great episodes for you guys. Um, we also want to mention that, um, we are going to do, I know we're not doing one next month, but, um, we are going to do another listeners episode in May guys. Um, we got such a good response on the last one that we do want to kind of brainstorm some ideas in April of what we can do for another listener episode in May. Um, we're really excited to do that. Um, also in May, uh, there'll be a listeners episode and, um, by May we will have sponsorship on the podcast as well. So that is going to be so freaking awesome that we will be able to bring a sponsor to you guys and start bringing you guys some products that we support. Um, and hopefully you guys will support and, um, and they're awesome. I can tell you that right now. There's just going to be such amazing things to come. April is going to be a great month. May is going to be a great month. June, of course, is going to be excellent because it's my birthday and we're going to Salem and Lizzie Borden home. So, guys, I'm not even joking when I say I'm uh, Lizzie Borden. I, I can't. <laughs> I just, I'm so excited to visit. And that it's been home confirmed and... more times over that we are staying in the most haunted room. Okay, so, guys, entire. one of our really good friends, um, Janet and Mark, shout out to you guys. Love you Rock guys. Rock and horror apparel. Lizzie Borden, we love you guys. <laughs> um, knows the owner of the Borden house and they have stayed there and she confirmed that the attic besides the living room is the most active room in the house and that's where we're staying so Yay! <laughs> we're probably I'm not so gonna sleep. excited and I'm I already told sleeping. Becky she can sleep next to the drawer that opened on its own Yay, thank you <laughs> best friends However, people let me tell you about my best friend. Isn't that great? So loyal. She's fucking horrible to me. It's okay. I'm just not going to sleep. I'm We're not going to sleep. Right we'll now. probably honestly be up most of the night. Um, Honestly, I just want to record a yeah. lot of the night and really try to contact Lizzie and not Andrew. But <laughs> um, no it's going to be really cool getting to actually do some investigations and in that house and really just soak in that whole story and just everything history, because it means so story. much to both of us. It really does. Yeah. Salem, so. Salem and that whole area is just going to mean so much to us and it's just going to be awesome. And, uh, like I said, we, we just cannot wait to bring you guys more great content. The last few episodes have just been so wonderful for us and happy. And we are so happy to bring them to you guys and we can't wait to bring you guys more great episode so um we hope you enjoyed this one um we know it was kind of kind of disturbing and we tried to make it as educational as possible we also tried to make it as light as we possibly could but um we hope you learned some things that maybe you never knew about him before and um we hope you guys support this episode thank you thank you thank you thank you so before we go gonna throw out our all of our social media yes. so we've got facebook don't fuck with the original Instagram, don't fuck with the original. Twitter, don't fuck with the, the original. At DFWTO8811. We are on CastBox and Podcast Player at don't fuck with the original. I am working on getting us on Podbean right now. 
Um, just letting you guys know that I've had a lot of people request Podbean, so I am I've been emailing them and we're working on that. So hopefully we'll be on Podbean in the next couple weeks. And shout out to Peter Gundry for our music because it is awesome as hell. Yes, thank you. Um, and then that should be it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Have an awesome week. We'll see you next week. And don't forget, don't kill your cereal. Peace.